simply means to save, to save. It was a cry of their hearts, Jesus, save us. And so today, uh, we begin our Easter celebration week. You ready for it? And so, yeah, this is, this is like the big time for us as people of faith, where we celebrate our hope in Jesus and in his resurrection. And as part of our celebration this week, we're doing a couple of different things. On Friday, we're having our Good Friday uh, Remembrance Service. It's going to be 7 p.m. online only. And so you'll want to check that out Friday night. You will, your Sunday, your Easter Sunday will be better if you check that out on Friday night. And then next Sunday, we're doing Easter. And Easter is going to be a grand celebration. And so here at Thornton, yeah, here at Thornton, we're doing uh, four services, 7, 830 10 and 11.30 and then 10 o'clock at Fort Lupton. And so here's what I need you to do, even right now, is if you're planning on coming in-house, I would love for you to take out your phone and to register your family to come, all right? It'll help us keep people socially distanced, safe. It'll also allow us to know if we need to add more seats or even another service, okay? So you can help us out in doing that in that way. Uh, we're excited. And just to kind of give you, if you're going to come here to Thornton, just to kind of give you perspective of where we're at on our services, 10 o'clock's pretty full. So if you don't like people, uh, stay away from 10 o'clock, all right? Uh, 8.30 and 11.30, about 50% full right now, plenty of space there. 7 o'clock, you can have any row you want, all right? So uh, that's what that looks like uh, today. So we are excited to celebrate, and yet the reality is, is that as we celebrate, the Bible also calls us to mourn with people who mourn. And the reality is, is that all of us were affected this week by another senseless tragedy uh, in our state in Boulder this week. And so what we wanted to do is before we get into teaching or anything like that, is just to take a moment to pause our hearts and to go to the Lord and to mourn with those who mourn. And so wherever you're at, would you mind just bowing with me as we pray? Father, uh, Lord, as we step into your presence today, uh, God, we are people full of great celebration and of great joy because of your resurrection. And Lord, excitement fills our hearts when we, when we think about who you are in our lives. And at the same time, as part of the human experience, while we experience joy, we also mourn. We feel the sorrow and the pain and the suffering that comes in this world. And Lord, over the last couple of decades, Lord, in this state in particular, God, we've been reminded of that. Lord, the latest with the shootings in Boulder of this last week, the senseless violence that surrounds us. And Lord, we just wanna pause and we, we wanna pray, Lord. Because it's in moments like that where we're reminded that, that we're not home. That we long for the day of peace. We long for a time where where violence is, is not among us, where there are no tears and there is no crying or weeping. Lord, we pray for the families directly impacted, those who have lost loved ones this week. God, we pray for the man who did this. Lord, the darkness of his heart, the things that had transpired in his life to lead him to believe that this was an answer. God, we lift up the churches in and around Boulder. Churches who are, who are bringing your hope, who are stepping into the situation like Flatirons and Quarterstone, Calvary, Pine Street. God, who are, who are dealing directly 
with people who have been affected. God, be with them. Lord, we look forward to the day where all of this is behind us and we're at home with you. But until then, Lord, we, we stand in this world in the midst of the suffering. God, running in to bring hope. And so thank you for the hope that you've given us. Thank you for the love that you've shown us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen. All right. Can we thank the worship team for leading us just this morning? They'll be back in a few minutes uh, in that. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today as we uh, finish up, wrap up our series that we've been calling No Silver Bullets. And the whole premise or idea of this series is that the, as a culture, silver bullets are offered everywhere. That magical, like, one-shot solution that solves all of the problems that we're facing, no matter what it is that we're facing. And the reality is, is in our culture, we've been taught or been conditioned uh, to think like in terms of a microwave, right? Like when it comes to our personal lives, our exercise, our work lives, even our faith lives, we're looking for the silver bullet, the magic bullet, the microwave solution in our lives. And sadly, it's even crept in to our relationship with God. And for many of us, we think that when it comes to our spiritual growth or our faith lives, if there was just a way to like microwave this thing, then all would be good. And yet what we've seen week after week is this, is that when it comes to spiritual growth, there are no silver bullets. That spiritual growth happens in the context of holistic community. That's where we've gone. That's what we've said. And as we looked at people who we see whose faith is growing, whose, whose spiritual lives are, are taking steps in, in the right direction, we've noticed a few things about their walk, about their relationship with God, that we've observed that growth happens not only in community, but specifically in a couple of areas within community. And so over the last five weeks, we've looked at those. And very quickly, if you've been with us, there are these things. The first one is practical application. And that's specifically when it comes to the word of God, that we're not reading the scriptures just to gain knowledge. We're not reading the scriptures just so we're smarter and can share stories, that we read the scriptures in order to apply it to our lives, that there's an expectation and an anticipation in scriptures that when we read this and we open these and we read these words, that it actually makes a difference in the decisions that we make, in our work, in our personal lives, in our finances, in the way that we live out our lives. Then in week two, we looked at prayer, and Pastor Tim walked us through how we have the opportunity, this opportunity to powerfully enter into communion with one another, spouses with one another, parents with kids in community, to go before the creator and to actually pray, to commune, to speak with the creator of the universe. The third thing we looked at was with Pastor Chris and vulnerability and how many of us, maybe all of us, because of the fear of our weaknesses in our life, actually hide ourselves and shield ourselves from the world in a way that actually impacts the very growth, the very transformation that we desire in our lives. Then last week, Pastor Tim again took us through and helped us look at spiritual friendships and the reality that the friendships that I have in my life is one of the ways, one of the significant ways that God uses to keep me close to him, to keep me close to Jesus, that I can't do this on my own. And as I just walk through those, can I just like pause for a moment and just reflect on how awesome our preaching team is? I mean, Pastor Chris and Pastor Tim, they could do this anywhere. Yeah, they have the... Uh, 
They have the skill set and the capacity to lead churches on their own, and yet they choose to share their gifts with us week in and week out. Today, fifth thing that we're closing up is, is missional living and looking at missional living. So as we talk about missional living, the way that we speak of it here at Crossroads is living in 4D. What we're talking about is taking our, our faith lives into the public square. Now, I know that as soon as I say that, for some of you, or maybe for most all of us, that that is a scary proposition, isn't it? To take our faith lives into the public square. That throughout recent church history, there's been this tendency for believers that once they believe, once they become followers of Jesus, to begin to isolate themselves in such a way that they, they start shutting themselves off to the greater world in closed and monastic community. To focus inwardly on, on their relationship with God. And for the most part, we, we look at these like monastic communities and this shutting off as something good, like we're, like we're diving in and, and we're really getting connected with God. But unfortunately, the reality is, is that this has created an us versus them mentality that affects both our faith lives and the way that the world views the church. And if we move past recent church history into really early church history, this is not the way that things always were. In fact, when we look at the New Testament, we see a word that's used 95 times, and in English, we transliterate it to the word evangelize or to gospelize. It just simply means to take the good news of Jesus into the world around us. I mean, once we get through the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus, the, word, the stories of Jesus, we get into a book called Acts where literally every single person who believes almost instantaneously begins to take this out and to gospelize, evangelize the world around them. That as we read through the New Testament, from Romans to Revelation, we see story after story of this expectation that once someone believes, that they would begin to evangelize, follow up, nurture, teach the words of Jesus in the communities in which God had placed them. As we look at early church history, we have story after story of how the gospel was shared through simple relationships, one person bringing the gospel to another in the context of relationship. That when it comes to early church history, both secular and Christian historians agree that the overwhelming conclusion is that the explosive growth of the church was not because of professionals, but it was because of informal missionaries. That is to say, regular believers. Not professional preachers, not trained evangelists, but regular people who had been changed by Jesus, carrying the mission of the church through conversation in their homes, in the wine shops, on the sidewalks, and in the marketplace. And it literally changed the world. And for some reason, in all of us, that's a little bit scary for us, isn't it? To take our faith that is rather private in our context in history and to bring it public. And yet, if you want your faith to grow, you have to demonstrate your faith. And if you want to hit the growth button on your spiritual life, if you want to see God at work in tangible ways, if you want to make a difference, a real difference in this world, then the calling on our lives is to live missionally. Is it scary? You better believe it. Will it change the way you live? Will it change your relationship with God? Absolutely. 
So we're going to explore what all this looks like today. And so, like I said, if you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. And 2 Corinthians is known as an epistle. Now, all of this will be really important in a moment of what I'm about to explain. The word epistle is just an ancient word that means letter. Like if I was to write you a letter, you could call that an epistle. And the epistles in the Bible we have are from Romans, beginning right after Acts, all the way through the book of Revelation. And in the New Testament, the epistles were simply trying to take the things that Jesus said and apply it into their lives. Like, this is what it looks like to live for Jesus. That's what the epistles were all about. Like, if Jesus was the Super Bowl, then the epistles are the post-game show trying to figure out how to actually live this out. How did breaking it down? How did it actually happen? The epistles were simply the early church trying to figure out how to apply Jesus' teachings. So when it comes to 2 Corinthians, the person who's writing this epistle is a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. And Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was a great missionary, pretty famous guy. And what he would do is he would travel around the world, the known world at the time, and he would stop in a city for a season and he would, he would gospelize, he would evangelize, and eventually he would start a church. He would plant a church there. And after that church got up on its feet, he would move on to another city and he would do it again. And so one of those times, one of those churches, one of those places that he started was the church in Corinth, in the city of Corinth. He gets it started, he gets it to the leadership, it gets on its feet, he takes off and goes to another place. Well, through the years, the way that they would stay in contact is they would write letters back and forth. That's the way that they stayed in contact. And somewhere along the line, Paul gets this report that things are not going well in the church in Corinth. In fact, they have some big issues. They have big issues like, like stepsons are sleeping with their stepmoms. They have issues like, like there are certain gifts that are being elevated, and if you don't have those gifts, you don't actually believe. I mean, these were big issues that were, that were like an assault on the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul hears about this, and he sits down, and he writes them a letter. We call it 1 Corinthians to help correct the issues. He loves them. He wants them to, to step in ways of righteousness. So he writes this letter to them in order to correct the issues. Well, the church has none of it. They don't listen to him. They basically, like, toss the letter out and say, we're not listening to you. And Paul, being Paul, is not dismayed by this. He just steps up. So he decides he's actually going to come and visit them, right? Like, my boyfriend's back. You're going to be in trouble, right? So Paul steps in. Paul steps in, and he steps in, and he visits them, and he actually calls it the painful visit. Like, it did not go well. Paul leaves. The church is fractured. There's fighting all over the place. And sometime a bit later after the painful visit, the church realizes the errors in their ways. And they sit down and they write Paul a letter and they say, Paul, look, we realize we've been wrong. We realize where our sin's at. We actually want to reconcile with you. And so Paul responds to them by writing a letter back that we call the epistle of 2 Corinthians. And in that epistle, most of, it, of what it is about is Paul speaking to them saying, look, I love you. I care for you. And showing how much he loves and cares for them. And so as he begins his letter, he's, he's working towards reconciliation. And as he's working towards this reconciliation with the church that he planted, what comes to light is the relational tension that drove the painful visit. And what comes to, what comes to us, what comes to light for us, is that the sticking point relationally was that they rejected Paul as a legitimate Christian leader. And the reason that they were rejecting Paul as a legitimate Christian leader is because he was poor, he was persecuted everywhere he went, and apparently he wasn't a very elegant speaker. And all the leaders that they saw around them 
were quite wealthy, that nobody persecuted them, and that they could speak for hours upon hours and people would listen to them. That's what they thought was a legit Christian leader. And so they begin to question Paul, and all of this ends up with the church that he planted. This is so silly. The very church that he planted were asking for letters of recommendation when it comes to his leadership, his authority. And here's how Paul responds to them. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. What Paul is saying here is that you don't need letters. And the reason that you don't need a letter of recommendation is because you are the letters of recommendation. Like you yourselves. And as he begins to answer their request for, later, for letters of recommendation, he reveals a calling on our lives that points us to who we are in our faith lives in the public square. Verse three, and you show that you are what? A letter. That word is epistle. That you are an epistle from Christ, from Jesus himself, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have, that through Christ, toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be what? Ministers, workers, servers of a new covenant. That Paul looks at the Corinthian church and says, you don't need letters. You need to realize as believers, that you are the letters of Jesus, that you are the post-game show, that your lives speak to the beauty of the gospel, that your lives demonstrate the very gospel that I preach as one of your leaders. Go, live it out. Be a living epistle. Live in a way that people see Jesus all over you. And the reality for the church in Corinth is that this was a game changer for them. This was a game changer for them, a calling for them not to live walled off from society, but actually to enter into the public square. Paul was saying that your life should have the same effect as if someone picked this up and began to read the book of Romans by themselves. That your life should have that kind of power. Now we bring it into our century and our context and we go, Paul, <laughs> that all sounds really good. But I'm not you. Like, I'm not qualified to do any of this. What credentials do I have? I mean, for most of us, you didn't spend eight years like me, right, in seminary learning how to preach this and teach this and read this. For most of us, our, our faith lives are, are something that we're holding on to and we're trying to do the best that we can. What credentials do I have? Every single one of us wonders that, don't we? And the reason that we wonder that is the reason that we seclude ourselves. We seclude ourselves into, into spaces. We're going, if I, if I just knew a little bit more, if I just, if I just had, was grounded a little bit more, then, then maybe I could. But the truth of the matter is, is that for most of us, we don't actually believe that we have what it takes to live missionally for Jesus. And Paul answers that in verse 4 for us. 
He says, surprise, you don't. <laughs> to which we go, oh, Paul, that's not encouraging at all. Paul says, no, 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 hear me out. He says, look, I don't have what it takes. He says, we, we, don't compl- we, don't, we don't say that any of this comes from us. That when it comes to our competency, our understanding, our sufficiency, our courage, that none of this comes from us, that all of this, all of our sufficiency comes from God working through me. And if this is what the great apostle Paul believed, where does it leave us? It leaves us with the same powerful truth that it's God who equips all believers. It's God who's competent, not us. And it's because of God's sufficiency that he will accomplish his will. And so Paul looks at the church in Corinth and he looks at the church today and he says, look, this is an excuse-free zone here. There's no excuses here. If you're a believer, a follower in Jesus, then you have everything you need to get in the game. That Jesus is with you. Step into a life of missional living. Take the things that Jesus said and show the world what it looks like to live it out for the world. And if we actually took this seriously, if we actually started to look at our lives and said, I am an epistle of Jesus, that that's the power of my calling, leaning into his sufficiency, not his own, it would probably mean, it would probably mean that we take the words of Jesus and we live them out with such integrity in our lives and yet at the same time that we would put that message in a language of our day where the world could read the good news from our lives. I mean, if we took this seriously, it means that we would look a whole lot like our neighbors, wouldn't it? In the way that we eat, in the way that we dress, even in the way that we, that we speak, our relational activities, our work life, our cultural engagement, that we would strive to participate with our neighbors and in those lives. And at first glance, we would look a whole lot like, a whole lot like the people around us in our communities. And yet if someone drew near, real near, they would see that there was ways that we were very much unlike our neighbors as well. So again, when we look at the early church, they were different. The early church was marked by integrity. They were marked by forgiveness. They were marked by generosity. They were marked by countercultural values, such as sexual, sexual ethics, the way that they cared for the poor and the immigrants, the way that they upheld life, that the church was startlingly different in these key areas as they try to live out the words of Jesus. It's why Paul gets so upset with them in 1 Corinthians to begin with, because they're not living out the words of Jesus. They weren't holding on to Jesus' words. And for us, sadly, it's no different today. See, if we're to hold these two things together, the, the integrity of our faith and, the, and, the, and putting it into a, a cultural context in which it could be understood, See, it mattered in the life of the early church. It created space in their lives to develop real, authentic relationships where the gospel could be shared with their neighbors, their coworkers, their family. And if we did it today, it would change the world. I mean, just imagine if we, if we took this seriously for a moment. And let's just say you, you walked in one Monday morning and, and one of your coworkers came up to you and asked you how your weekend went and you took the bold step and you said, well, it was really good. One of the things that I did was I actually went to church. 
And I heard a message on, on forgiveness and, and how to forgive those who have, who have harmed me in my life. And when your coworker goes, though, that's, that's interesting, you take another bold, small plunge. And you mention what helped you most was the idea that even though you have not given God his due in your life, that God still offers forgiveness through Jesus. Maybe you get to know a young couple in your neighborhood and you find out they're having some marriage struggles and, and so you make the ask and you invite them over for dinner. And you guys hit it off and it's a great time. And you go, hey, would you, would you like to do this some more? Like one of the things that's, that's helped us most in our marriage is, is the Bible in Ephesians chapter 5 and how to live out our lives. And, and we would love nothing more than just to, to walk with you through this for a couple of months. What would it look like? I mean, just imagine if a, a husband walked into service today, not quite sure where he stands with, with Jesus, what he believes when it comes to Jesus. And at the end of this service, he, he goes ahead and he reaches out and he texts next to the number on the screen and we get him engaged in growth tracks and we get him a spiritual guide and you happen to be the spiritual guide that walks with him as he discovers who Jesus is. I mean, picture a woman who begins coming to your community group, who has questions about the faith. Even though she grew up in the church, she has all kinds of questions, and you two decide that you're going to get together meeting one-on-one, -on -one, reading books that address the questions that she has. I mean, maybe you're a mom with, with some young kids, and you decide that, that you're going to start some play dates with your kids, and you're going to invite your mom friends, your believers and non-believer friends to this space. And as the year goes on, the group, the conversations, the group, they're freewheeling, right? Parenting and, and husbands and, and personal stuff and school and faith. And you do your best to sprinkle in a little bit of your faith every time you get together. And pretty soon, pretty soon, one of those moms starts coming to the church. They put their life in Jesus and now you're a part of their story. And instead of me or Kim or Chris baptizing them, it's you plunging them into the water, celebrating the new life that they have. Perhaps you're a young professional and you have several unprof uh, young professional friends inside and outside the church and you decide you're gonna throw a Memorial Day party, inviting both of them to the gathering. At the party, you guys hit it off, and about three minutes later, one of them asks you about faith. See, this isn't traditional evangelism. This is looking at all of our lives and asking the question, how do we live missionally? How do I actively and with integrity live out my faith relationally, bringing the gospel into connection with people's lives? See, the early church, they took Paul seriously. They really believed that they were the epistles of Jesus. And the church grew explosively to the tune of 40% every decade for nearly three centuries. And they did so in a hostile environment. Alan Creeder, a church historian, shares it like this. He says, the early church did not engage in public preaching. It was too dangerous. There are practically no evangelists or missionaries whose names we know the early Christians had no mission boards. They did not write about evangelism. After Nero's persecution in the first century, the church in the Roman Empire had closed their worship services. When they did meet, leaders would stand at the door serving as bouncers, making sure an informant wouldn't come in. Officially, 
It was deemed by the state a superstition. Prominent people scorned it. Neighbors discriminated against them. Periodically, the church was massacred. It was hard to be a Christian in the Greco-Roman world. And still, the church grew. Why? Well, as Alan Krieger says, he says it like this. That once non-believers saw the lives of Christians, that they were attracted to the community. They were attracted to the church. And they became open to talking about the words of Jesus that were the source of this kind of life, and they believed. See, here's the deal. That when the lives, the Christians begin to live their lives seriously for Jesus, when they took their, their, their faith, their faith that they were holding private into the public square, it changed the world. That people came to believe. And the hope that we long for became reality. And so here's the deal. We want to give you an easy opportunity to step into this way of living with your neighbors, your friends, and your coworkers. Some of you have caught wind that our awesome outreach pastor, Trevor, who does this better than anybody. This is why he leads us the way that he does. He has partnered with a guy named Danny Cash, who is like hot sauce royalty in Colorado, maybe really nationally, to produce our very own Crossroads hot sauce label, all right? That we have three sauces, and they are amazing. I've tried every one. And we've been using these in community outreaches. We've been using them in the hospitals. And now I know that you know about them because you've been blowing up my email, was going, hey, Pastor Matt, how can we get the sauce? So if you've been one of those people, today's your lucky day. Because in our lobbies after service, we have about 1,200 bottles of hot sauce. All right? We're asking for a $5 donation. And if you're going to buy one, we ask that you buy two. One to keep for yourself one to give away to a friend or a neighbor. We want to give you an easy start to living missionally in the places that God has you. On every bottle has our logo. It has a little QR code that will take them to an invite on our YouTube page from me. I never would have thought in a million years that a bottle of hot sauce would open the door to faith, but it has in amazing, amazing ways. And so, yeah, so... Let this be an easy starting point for you, all right, to live a missional lifestyle as you embody being an epistle of Jesus. Now, one last thing before we wrap this up. If you're brand new today, hopefully what you've heard and walk away from this message with is realizing that Jesus is a pretty big deal to us, that we take the things of Jesus seriously. We want the whole world to know him. We think he's that special. And the reason that we believe that is because we realize that we're all sinful, that every one of us has the propensity to sin, that the whole world is full of evil because of our sin. And if you need any picture of that, just look at Colorado this week. And we believe that the only hope that we have to our sin is because Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, taking our sin as his own dying the penalty of death and then raising three days later showing that he is God. Our suffering comes with sin. Our suffering comes because of our sin. Our lack of purpose comes because of our sin. Our lack of hopelessness comes because of our sin. 
The things that we don't like about ourselves comes because of our sin. And that sin has separated us from God. But Jesus made a way to connect us back to the relationship that we all long for. And so if you're interested in knowing more about this Jesus, I would encourage you to simply text the word Jesus to the number on that screen. Take the bold step to have the conversation with someone today. Before we go to communion, I just want to say a word of prayer. Father, we come before you, Lord, thanking you for the calling that you've put on our lives. Lord, we thank you for making a way for us to live with you and to be with you. God, I pray that you would give us the boldness as believers to step out of the shadows, Lord, and into the world. God, if a bottle of hot sauce helps, God bless it. But Lord, help us be the epistle of Jesus in our lives knowing that in and of ourselves, we are not sufficient to do any of this, that we need you. And so we cry out to you, God. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, walk with us, be with us. Lord, what you accomplished, Lord, some 2,000 years ago on the cross, beginning with Palm Sunday, as you rode in to shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna. Lord, let that be the story of our lives, that you, our great God, saved us. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. And so we remember Easter week, we remember what happened on Good Friday when Jesus, sitting with his disciples, broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. On Friday, he demonstrated what all of that meant with his life. By his body being broken on the cross, his blood being spilt out for the forgiveness of our sins. And so today, we remember. And we drink. We're gonna continue on in our worship, through singing. If at any point during the songs you need someone to pray with, we would love to pray with you. We have people in the back ready to do that. Online, you can just click the button. Otherwise, I'm gonna invite you to go ahead and stand wherever you're at and let's sing these praises to God today.